0: I'm addicted to ambition. I'm addicted to the next thing. That's why I can never put my finger on what's going to make me happy. That's Daryl Gray, renowned trial attorney and partner at Wright Gray. The money's always going to be there. It's not a big thing. It's about being in a position to where you are in all these different markets, and you're giving them something that they can't get from somewhere else.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Daryl Gray to discuss why authenticity is the key to long-term success, how to maintain a quality client experience while scaling a growing practice, and why being able to effectively tell a client's story
0: is at the heart of fighting for justice. My whole business model is about trust. It's about community engagement, community buy-in, And you don't do that just by putting up a billboard saying, hey, we fight harder than anybody else. Whether you add value, it's always about the value add. For me, it's about making sure that in order for you to advocate for a client, I have to know that client. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.
1: Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. All right, Daryl, welcome to the podcast.
0: Glad to be here.
1: I'm excited. I'm excited to have you here. This has been this has been a long time coming. I know you guys are in New Orleans, but every time you and I chat, you're always talking about growing up in Memphis. So oh, man. Wh-
0: what was that like and like and how
1: did that kind of shape you into the person you are today?
0: You know, it's funny you you led with that. Man, growing up in Memphis was a confounding experience, right? Because, you know, I grew up, I was raised by a single mom. My dad was murdered when I was like six years old. My mom raised us I didn't grow up in object poverty, but I didn't grow up with anything. And I didn't know that. And it's a really, it's an interesting thing. And all my friends always tell me, why don't you talk about how you grew up? Nobody really knows you. They just look at you and see the success. Well, obviously, you know, this. success isn't overnight. The only thing overnight is parking. That's all the only time you're going to find something that happens overnight. But I grew up in an environment that was, and I grew up during the crack era. You know, everybody talks about that. If, you, if you're familiar with the show Snowfall. I grew up around all of that kind of stuff. A lot of my friends' parents were on drugs. You know, I'm talking about mom and dad. We had parents that were in the streets doing all kind of things and, and addicted to drugs, and they would walk us to school in the morning. You know, one of my friends, I remember this like it was yesterday, one of my friends' mother was a prostitute, and she would walk us to school almost every morning. But guess what? I didn't know anything was wrong with that. You know, I didn't know that was a problem. Taking that And juxtaposing it to how my household was, and I grew up in a very, very loving household. I didn't have the same struggles that a lot of people that my friends that I grew up with had. You know, I didn't have parents that were on drugs. You know, my family wasn't on drugs. They they went to work every day. My grandfather was a um, an A.M.E. minister, and he had five girls, and we all kind of grew up in the same house. So. Well, my grandfather being an AME minister, if anybody out there knows anything about the AME church, it stands for African Methodist Episcopal Church. And a lot of those ministers, most of them, as a matter of fact, the pastors have college degrees. And my grandfather got his college degree in 1960. So you take that and everybody, all of my aunts have college degrees. One of my aunts has a Ph.D. in nursing. My mom was an elementary school teacher. We actually graduated college together, but she worked for a long time before she went back to school and finished college. So I grew up in a household that valued education within a community that was ravaged by drugs and crime. So I got a chance to see everything and I got a chance to put values on things that were important. And one of the biggest things that I put value on was humanity. I always see people as people. I don't judge. It's not my place to judge anybody. And I think when you start to look at that process of evaluating human beings, that's what made me the lawyer that I am. I get an opportunity to say, you know what? This person deserves a champion. I'm gonna be there for them. And I'm gonna get to know them. And I'm gonna get to understand what they're going through and what makes them different and what makes them unique. Because I tell people all the time that we're all one of one. They always say that everybody's unique and that's very true, but we're all the same in the sense of we wanna be treated with respect and dignity. That's how my upbringing in Memphis kind of pushed me into a situation to where I don't put value on things like other people do, I think. And, and what led to even wanting to enter the practice of law? I think that in evaluating what I want to do with my life, I felt like, you know what, there has to be something that makes me comfortable and makes me happy and gives me the opportunity to help people. Like I was telling you earlier, I grew up in a, a very religious family led by a AME minister. He was that that was his vocation. That was his calling. I saw sacrifice every single day. And I practice law from the point standpoint of being a servant. That's how I, look, I look like I'm one of the most overpaid servants there <laughs> that could possibly be, you know. So I knew that I wanted to go into a not a profession, but a vocation and I got an opportunity when I was younger to, to figure out, like, you know, I, I did, I always did well in school, even though I didn't put forth all the effort that I could have put forth, but I always did well in school. And I want to do, I want to go into a medical profession or do I want to be a lawyer? And after I looked at it and I, I made the choice based upon lawyers seem to help people, people that look like me more than, than doctors could. Like, it's just, it seems as if the practice of the law was just ripe for change
1: on the way to, you know, going to law school, becoming an attorney, then entering the practice of law? Like, what were
0: some of the challenges that you experienced? Just forging my own blueprint, I think. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't have anybody I can call them and say, hey, what what is this about? I'm in law school. I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. You know, I didn't have anybody to teach me any of that stuff. From an academic standpoint, I've always tested very, very well. But when I was a kid, even though my family was big on education, they didn't check and push. They were like, hey, you got to go do this, you got to go do that. It was all on my own volition. Like, I wanted, if I wanted to do something, I did it. That's always been kind of the motivation. When I was in high school, I played every sport. You know, I was a three-year starter in basketball, two-year starter in football. I didn't pick up football until late. And I actually got recruited in high school to play college football. My family never came to games, never came to any games. They, they weren't big into that kind of stuff. They didn't understand sports. But in hindsight, I know what sports did for me as a as a person, as a lawyer, as a parent. But I can remember a time when my grandmother picked me up from football practice and my coach was like, I'm gonna get your baby a scholarship. You know, he's getting recruited. She's telling him, he's smart. He's going to college. He's gonna be all right. I don't care about the sports thing. That was how I was raised. You know, I was, I was raised that you were, you were expected to be successful and to do something with your life other than what you see the people around you doing. So for me, creating a blueprint of my own was always the challenge because I didn't have anybody to guide me in that direction. And, I mean, it seems like it was a challenge, but it was also
1: probably a strength, right? So, like, meaning that I'd love for you to kind of speak to kind of your journey. You you get out of law school. What leads to you starting a practice and, and kind of going down the entrepreneurial path as
0: well? Wow, man, you know, the decision to start my own practice was out of necessity. I had a couple of jobs, and it was never something that I really felt comfortable doing. I struggled with trying to figure out who I was in the space. Who am I and what kind of lawyer am I going to be? If you don't know what kind of person you are, how do you know what kind of lawyer you're going to be? So I kept struggling with what I saw other lawyers doing and what I I saw other practices set up. And I was never comfortable with that. I realized that I had to figure out what made sense for me. And that was the biggest struggle throughout the whole process of going from, graduating law school and building a relatively successful eight-figure law firm at this point now. So you're talking about graduating law school in 2008. And the process for me had a lot of ebb and flow. At one point in time, this was back in maybe 2015, I wanted to leave the practice of law because I just felt like I didn't fit in. Like I felt like if I'm looking at what everybody else is doing, I'm not like that. I don't look at people like dollar signs. I don't look at people as if they are somebody that's less than me. So all of the lorries around me that I saw and that I knew from law school, they had that kind of mindset. So in 2015, I was like, okay, I got enough cases. I can pull out a couple of million dollars. I can go do something else that's going to be more fulfilling for me. It makes me more comfortable because I was starting to have a lot of insecurities about who I was as a lawyer and maybe I wasn't doing this right, maybe I wasn't built for this career that I thought, I, you know, even though I didn't know, I thought this was, I made the right decision because growing up, y'all, you can be a lawyer, Dr. Indian chief. I chose to be a lawyer. So the one thing that I can point to that really changed and was a, a lightning bolt moment was when I went to uh, the trial lawyers college, Jerry Spence trial lawyers college. And I went there without kind of knowing. I went there on a whim. I applied, I got in and I said to myself, I said, you know what? I'm going to shut it down for a month, because it takes like three weeks or whatever, three and a half weeks to go out there and go through the process. I just went out there. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how it was going to be as a profound effect on my life as it was. And when I got out there and I started to realize, well, oh, damn, <laughs> there is a different way of doing this. And there's a different way of accepting people who for who they are and loving them and advocating for them. And when I tell you that completely changed everything in terms of the way I approach the practice of law. Now I'm more comfortable doing what I do and living my life every day than I ever have been. But I still struggle because with the success that has come with practicing law and focusing on doing things that serve others, I still, it's like I'm dealing with a bit of survivor guilt and imposter syndrome. It's a bit of that, a bit of this, but it's all pain. It's a struggle every single day. And I always try to figure out like, I can't believe that I just won this case for X amount of dollars. And I got friends that that, that are doing 30 years in the penitentiary that I grew up with and I played in the dirt with. That's the kind of stuff that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I've had people that I grew up with, you know, see me and just reach out and be like, hey, Darryl, I'm so proud of you. And I'm looking like, I'm still the same person. You know, my Instagram handle is still D. Gray. And it's for a reason. Like, I'm the same person that I was when I grew up and that's what I think keeps me in a position to to work as hard as I do to be successful. Yeah.
1: And I want to elaborate on that, just that kind of that crisis, if you will, in, in the sense that early on thinking, is this for me? Am I built for this? And now seeing that man, I could do it the way the way you're running the practice today. It's actually leading to a very successful practice. You're able to help a lot of people and just forging your own path. I'm just wondering what were some of the things that were some of the disconnects in terms of just questioning, like, is this for me, is this how
0: a practice is run versus now being fully bought into your way of doing things? The greatest disconnect was just like the human aspect, the human element. Like, you know, I had one instructor at the Trial Lawyers College tell me, you already know what people are coming here to learn. We're enriching it for you because you already get it. You you, You just have that in you. And I think that the biggest struggle always has been, what do you do to make sure that you always have your finger on the pulse of what's important for your community. Like, I'm always looking to be a champion and a servant to others. That's all I do. Like, that's my whole whole business model. I think the money is a byproduct of doing that, right? You're gonna make money. This is what, a, a $400 billion industry? You know, a lot of people don't understand how much money floats around the legal industry. Legal services is a huge, huge industry compared to, you know, oil and gas and insurance and tech, all these industries that we know about. So the money is there. But the thing that sets you apart and I think the thing that's gonna always survive, whether it be, you know, the rise of AI, whether it be other changes like hedge funds coming in and all of this stuff, which everybody's concerned about now, you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what a servant should be doing for the people that need your help the most. And that's the, that's John every day. You know, if you're not looking at it from that standpoint, then you're not going to create a long lasting survivable business model. Mm-hmm. In terms of your firm, what do you do different? And,
1: and I know like sometimes I ask this question, everyone's like, well, we care more than anybody else. We fight harder than anybody else. And I mean, someone's listening to that. I don't know if that gives them a whole lot, but I mean, obviously you're very well connected with the community. What are some of the things that you would say are like the values of the firm?
0: The value is is just that. It's built upon the people that trust us. My whole business model is about trust. It's about it's about community engagement, community buy-in. And you don't do that just by putting up a billboard saying, hey, we fight harder than anybody else. How do you show your clients that you are the one that they can trust to get them the results, the legal results that they need? You, you're talking about people who've been kicked in their ass their whole life. They've never had anybody fight for them. They never felt like... You know, this was about me. They never felt like I got, a fighting, I got a fighting chance of being successful in this particular situation. And they're coming to you when they're at their lowest a lot of times. You know, I do personal injury. So in, in a personal injury situation, if somebody's hurt and it's changed their life and they don't know what's going to happen and they're confused and they're, they wake up, it's keeping them up in the middle of the night. Who are you in that scenario? Where do you add value? It's always about the value add, right? So for me, it's about making sure that In order for me to advocate for a client, I have to know that client. A lot of times, some of my clients or a lot of my clients have become friends after their case is over with because of the time and energy and attention that I invested into them during the process of me representing them. So that means I go to their homes. I get to know their family, their friends. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to walk inside of your kitchen and see what you see when you wake up in the morning. I want to know how you interact with your kids and your family. I want to know how they feel about what happened to you with this accident, how you changed. They may not tell you that, but I want to build a relationship with everybody in this circle so when I speak on your behalf, I'm doing so from a standpoint of complete knowledge. And I'm also talking about as a professional, as somebody who I, I spend every day I can focusing on being be- being a better lawyer. And that means I'm always studying. I'm always preparing myself for another case and for whatever I need to work on at that moment. But I always take time out to engage with my clients and get to know them individually and get to know their whole situation and the scenario that brought them to the point to where they needed my help. Obviously,
1: your practice has grown tremendously. As the practice scales, what kind of challenges does that introduce? I mean, obviously, with, with thousands of clients, it's it's hard to get to know each one individually. So, how do you scale that when making sure that you have that level of attention to detail for, for every client every case?
0: You know, that's, that's one of the biggest struggles. That's one of the hardest things to do when you're growing Practice starts to. To blossom, you know, like I, I talk about, you know, just AI for instance. I I can't wait till it gets to a point to where I can replicate myself through artificial intelligence because you know you can't expect everybody to be you. That's impossible. Nobody's going to have your DNA. Like I said before, everybody's a one of one, and I know a lot of times my clients struggle with. I want Daryl to represent me. I want Daryl on my case. Well, if you got fifteen hundred clients then you can't represent everybody. Because I've, I've created this relationship with the community where they like us, they know us, and they trust us. So when you start to have that kind of connection with the community, they bring you very serious cases. And they're important cases. They're life-changing cases if they're done right for our clients. So for me, I'm really, really invested in making sure that my team understands there are certain boxes that we have to check in an attorney-client relationship. It goes past just, oh, we want to do a quantum study to see how much a case is worth. And then we want to put X amount of energy into it. And we want to, you know, make sure that we check these boxes when it comes to pushing the case through litigation. Everybody knows how to do that. But do you know how to care? Do you know how to make the sacrifices that are needed to put this client first? That's what they hired you for. And I try to be very cognizant of the people that we bring into our fold because we're in creating an environment where everybody understands what it means to be selected by these people in the community. And that's the hardest thing. I, it, does, it comes with all this, the challenges, but you try to teach and coach based upon, look, we drill this. we talking about core values and all this stuff. It all, it all centers around being client centric, being client focused, being community centric. The model for my firm is for the culture, for the community, for you. Each one of those tenants have a distinct meaning. For the culture, that means that we understand what you guys are going through out there, and we're here to champion it. For the community, we want to raise everybody up. We want to show that there's unity amongst everybody, but we also want to make sure that we collectively understand what's important for our society and our community. And for you, it's an individualized approach. Like We want you to know that you matter. There is a point in your life to where you can say, they cared about me and they did what was right by me. And it's it's not about the money. The money is gonna come. I have this thing to where I'm always gonna make sure my client gets more money than anybody else. And you think to yourself, man, that sounds like a bad business decision. When the actuality is not because it's twofold. You make sure you un- that that client understands. Listen, we're doing this for you. You're one person. We go through three thousand cases a year. So you being in this situation to where you are okay is more important than. This little bit of money because we're gonna make it up on the back end. We're gonna make it up collectively as in an aggregate. But for you, that's the most important thing. So that's how we that's how we lead our practice. Yeah. I love it. And, and looking back, was there a particular case or just
1: something that happened that was kind of the catalyst behind a lot of this? Just your personal and professional growth. Any anything that you think back on, you were saying like if that specific case I either evolved me in this way or changed my perspective. Anything like that.
0: Yeah, I can, I can think back to a case that I, heard I had very early on in my career. It lasts for so long. It was probably a six or seven year process. We represented this family. It was in Memphis. It was a dog bite case. And this older gentleman, I think he was like 72 years old, he was walking from his house to the store. And it was an apartment complex in between his house and the store. Somebody who was living in an apartment complex had some vicious pit bulls. And the pit bulls used to get out of the neighborhood and menace everybody. And on this particular day, the pit bulls were free. And when the police finally showed up to get the pit bulls and, and put them away, get the, the, the owner to put them away, they ran the owner's name. He was a sex offender, and he wasn't registered at that address. So they told him to put the dogs up in the apartment. They were going to take him to jail for being in violation of the sex offender registry. Well, with him going to jail and nobody that cared for the dogs, the dogs are running amok in the apartment. And somebody downstairs, I think, called and said the dogs were either chewing on the pipes or come to find out they had... They were stuck in the house so long by themselves, free, just running around. They were urinating all over the house and they were dripping down into the apartment below. So the downstairs neighbor called the landlord. Landlord sent somebody over to check on the apartment. He opened the door and saw these maniac pit bulls running crazy. He opened the door and ran off and they ran out in the neighborhood. And my guy just happened to be walking down the street. They attacked him. Vicious, violent attack. He ended up having a heart attack. His daughter, his family, different people in the community were trying to run down and save him. But... He died. So we ended up trying that case, and it took years to get to trial. And we eventually, during that litigation, the, the wife died, and it was only a, the family was the decedent, the dad, the mom, and the daughter. That's all they had. just They just had each other. And the dad died. Mom died during the penance of the litigation. So at, at trial, I only had the daughter, who was an adult at the time. We ended up trying that case, and we won, I want to say, $2.6 million. And the judge reduced that case by half saying that that man wasn't worth that much. That shook me to my core because I could never in a million years think that. I I struggle with how much money to ask for on that case, but I struggle with trying to to figure out how much money to ask for and I came up with a number that made sense to me and the judge said that this person's life wasn't worth that much. So again, it goes to who are we to put a price on somebody's life like that? And he cut it in half and we ended up taking the court of appeals and they upheld the judge's decision, which, you know, judges do what judges do. Court of appeals, are, are, their judges just like the trial court. So they all kind of, so they all stick together like police. <laughs> but at the end of the day, My client, my remaining client was so happy, not about the money, but about the justice she got that day, getting a chance to tell her story and and being heard. And fast forward after that trial, maybe two, maybe three years after that, I walked her down the aisle. She didn't have anybody left. And she called me and said, could you walk me down the aisle? And I did. And we've we've been close ever since. That's kind of the thing that you give a little bit of yourself every time you take on somebody's case because you can't do it any other way. Like, it's just not about the money. You know what I mean? Like, I just can't focus on, Oh, how much is this case worth? Oh, I take that case. I'll put some energy into that. If I take your case, I'm going to war for you. That's how I was raised. Like, you know, I talk about that all the time. Like, you know, a warrior doesn't fight because he hates what's in front of him. He fights because he loves what's behind him. That's how I am. That's how I was raised. That's what was instilled in me as a child. And that's just, I don't even, I feel completely at peace and comfortable with being in a situation where I'm fighting for somebody. And I know you and I have talked about this before. I think the other side of that story, when you look at it, it's like, there are not a whole lot of lawyers that even take
1: a case like that. Oh, yeah. You know,
0: you look at where the liability is, you're pursuing it for six, seven years. Like, what, what compelled you to do it? You know, I look at this like as a vocation. I don't look at it like as a profession. I just feel like I needed to fight for that family. And I, I mean, I was told by Buku lawyers that, "Oh, this is a dog shit case." Like, for lack of a better term, it's a dog shit case. I'm not taking. It. I, I can't worry. I wouldn't take that case. And then when I got all of that money on the quote unquote money on that case, people were like, "Oh, he's not gonna collect. He's gonna." They stroke the check. I knew everything. Like I, and that's another thing too. When I get involved in a case. I'm down in the nitty gritty. I want to know every single thing about every aspect of that case because I need to know that I'm obsessed with knowing every part of a case so I can I can put forth my best efforts. You're a competitive guy, too. So I was going to ask you about this. I mean, I would say the legal profession is, is
1: is fairly competitive, but then you take it to another level. You and I have talked about this as well. It's almost there is that level that probably makes people almost you know a little bit uncomfortable. Like, Daryl, I'm worried about you kind of thing. Like, I'll never give you a hard time. I understand it. But what do you think that is?
0: Man, you know, I don't know, man. My wife, I, I mean, it's, you know, we start like we were talking earlier before we started. You know, I grew up on Michael Jordan, Detroit Bad Boys, you know, the Lakers when they had their run with Magic Johnson and, and James Worthy. Kobe is my f- all-time favorite player, the mamba mentality. My wife was messing with me the other day about I was working, and she wakes up at 5 o'clock in the 530 in the morning to get ready for work. She woke up, she said, when I woke up, you were working. I came home because my office is right off the, the bedroom and she was like, It's eleven o'clock, I'm getting in bed, you're still working. You hadn't moved. And then she woke up the next day, I was still working. And I do that and it's not it's not healthy, but it's an obsession that I have. I just feel like when I'm in it, I don't feel I feel no pain. Like I'm just I'm just looking for a route to be successful for my client. It is a competitive thing, but it's also is that tinged with the trust. If you grow up and you know that you got to fight for everything and you got to put forth the effort, like the people always talk about Memphis is like this uh, grit and grind. Like it's a very blue collar place. And in order to be successful, it's about your effort. And if you tell me that, like I got to work hard, that's nothing. That's easy. I've been working through adversity my whole life. So it's nothing for me to sit in my huge house and sit and sit there and work on behalf of somebody else to make them successful. That's what I was chosen to do. So the competitiveness just flows from the ability to, you know, again, is again is about being selected. I've heard a lot of preachers say favor ain't fair. What does that mean? That means that, you know, sometimes you're just chosen to do certain things and we're chosen to do certain things. Don't take it for granted. Put forth every ounce of you into making that thing a rewarding situation. And that's what I that's what I do when it comes to practicing law
1: you got a big vision, too. I know we we talked about this over the years. I remember a few years back, you were telling me about this vision. What is it today? What's, what's the vision for the firm?
0: Whew, man, it changes. It changes from time to time. To be honest with you, Mike, I'm just walking because when I first got involved with Crisp, I didn't think that I was going to create the biggest law, black law firm in the state of Louisiana. I did that in like two years, and I did that through the pandemic. And I did that based upon the relationships that I have with the community and people trusting me it got scary for a minute because I was growing so fast and I tried to st- take a step back and, and recalibrate and try to figure out why, why am I here again? That, you know, that kind of goes into that survivor's guilt, that imposter syndrome. Like how, did, how is this happening to me? You know, you can set these goals, these lofty goals and expectations for yourself, but when it starts to come true, what do you do with it? So at the point where I am right now, three to four years, I know for a fact I'm gonna have the largest black law firm in the country. I know that for a fact. But that's not how I wanna define my firm's success because everything that I do is about sacrifice. Like I you know, I sacrifice for my clients, I sacrifice for my team, I sacrifice for my community. I sacrifice all these for all these different people, I'm the last person on the on the trough. But for me, I'm also, I don't want to call it curse, but I'm also addicted to ambition. I'm addicted to the next thing. That's why you can never, I can never put my finger on what's gonna make me happy because I don't. I mean, the money is there. Like the money is always gonna be there. It's not a big thing. It's about being in a position to where you are in all these different markets and you're servicing all these different people and you're giving them something that they can't get from somewhere else. That's always gonna be my my next step. Is about what are we gonna now? Like right now, we have we have an office in Memphis. I have two in New Orleans. I have one in Shreveport. I have one in Lake Charles, and I'm opening Baton Rouge this year. And that's all in the state of Louisiana. I want to move into other markets. So that's my thing. I'm, I want to keep growing progressively and I want to do things in a way that my blueprint is replicated across those different markets. Yeah. And I guess I won't get too deep, but
1: how do you define success, right? It's obvious it's not It's not the financial. Obviously you're serving a lot of people and, the, and that number is growing year after year.
0: I think for me at this point, defining success is about how many times am I able to give somebody something they never had in their life? One of my law partners is the state senator, Jimmy Harris. He's been a public servant for 20 for some odd years. And every time he, he brings me around, he says, you know, this is Daryl Gray. So he introduces me to new people. And I'm always talking about what we're doing in the courtroom and in the business sphere and how, you know, I understand. Unlike some, most law firm owners, especially trial lawyers, I understand CAC, I understand case acquisition cause I understand data points and metrics, I get all of that stuff. It's easy for me. But what I always tend to lose sight of is the changes that we make in people's lives. Like we give away scholarships to kids, I just do that because I think that's the right thing to do. So for me, when I start to look at how do you really measure success, it's about being part of somebody else's success. Like if, if what I do, creates a model by which other people can be successful to me that's that's the most fulfilling thing and i'd be
1: remiss if we didn't talk about this big party you guys throw because you work hard but you guys also like to have a good time uh, and especially sharing of that with the community
0: yeah 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 i mean it's new orleans you know my my main office is is in new orleans it's a part of the culture when somebody dies they have a parade and a a party you know what i mean like this is a part of the culture you know i tell people this all the time it just started dawn on me I've been in New Orleans almost as long as I've been in Memphis. I've been in New Orleans for 22 years. With 20, 21 years, I was in Memphis for 22. For me, you know, embracing the culture, the cultural aspects, it's such a unique and, and fulfilling place. You know, a lot of times if you go out of the country, go to the Caribbean or South America, you're going to feel like you're in New Orleans. And the same cultural things kind of translate. So the party that we have every year is really about a celebration of of the culture of the city and giving back and showing people like, hey, this is what you guys mean to us. We know what what we mean to you all because we hear it all the time. Like, thank you for doing this. You know, we partner with the police department. We partner with the city. We partner with some of the the school systems in the the area. And we do all this giving back. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that that party shows everybody like, hey, this is what community engagement is, what community endeavors to make people's lives better and give and bring some joys all about. Yeah. And it seems like you have no problem filling it. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's a free party, so it books up within the first 24 hours, really. It's crazy. And we always, you know, it's a celebrity, it's a celebrity party. We bring in guests, celebrity guests, and all of this stuff. So it's, it's a good time.
1: I think working hard is just, at this point, it's like table stakes, right? I mean, if you're going to operate at a high level, I think you have to put in the work ethic. But how do you just, after all these years, just the sheer endurance of it all, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay engaged? Are there any certain
0: habits that you practice, or certain things that keep you focused? You know, I think for me, the engagement comes from from self-identifying. People always say, like, who are you? What what do you self-identify with? And it's two things, right? You look in the mirror and you and that son of bitch in the mirror is always going to be somebody going to just that you're going to have to fight against. Like you got to that's a challenge. There's a battle there every single day. But you also have to self-identify around the roles and the aspects of your life that's important. You know, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a business owner. I'm a leader. And I'm a trial lawyer. Those are the things that define me. Speaking of New Orleans, it's it's like this gumbo of greatness for me. Like, how do I take all of these things and put them together to make me a better person, to make me a better neighbor, a better friend, a better family member, a better community, partner with all of the people that we work with, and, you know, if you look at all of those different things, you know, fatherhood is the greatest gift to a man. Like, if you can be a father and, and lead somebody and, and mold and shape them and make those sacrifices for them, that's greatness, right? You know, even though my wife is my best friend, I know some days she doesn't want to be married to me, but I also make sure that I consider her, and she's an entrepreneur herself. So we have that connectivity from that standpoint, and we all, we try to support each other to the best of our abilities. When it comes to being a business owner, You know, what is that about? That's about sacrifice. That's about motivation, motivating people, being, you know, letting people know that they matter. Being a guy, a guide through difficult situations. I consider myself to be a field general. Right. I'm always going to have blood and and mud on my boots. I'm always going to be right there in the trenches with the people that I work with. So leadership and being a business owner kind of really go hand in hand when you start to really think about it, because when you're a leader, you got to be smart enough to know when to listen, when to talk when to lead, when to follow. And sometimes you got to talk to the point where you got to shake heaven and earth. And that's where it kind of flows into being a trial lawyer. You know, being a trial lawyer is probably the most addictive thing that I've ever been involved in. I could not have another drink. I I can give up cheeseburgers and hot wings. I love both of those things, right? But the idea of sacrificing it all, like your time, your energy, your emotions, putting it all on the line for somebody else, the passion that goes into trying cases, It's this thing that burns inside. You can't even, you don't, it's hard to talk about it with people who don't, like you're a business owner, you've grown something substantial, so you get it. But most lawyers, they can't understand unless, I consider trial lawyers to be like the fighter pilots of our industry, right? Because it takes all of this work you got to get there. And it's the, you know, it's the dedication that it takes to be successful at it. It doesn't stop. Being a trial lawyer just, it's, it's the drive that's required to harness the passion and not let it destroy you. You know, it takes a lot of discipline. You got to know when, like, I can't do this. I got to I got to shut it down for three weeks to get prepared for this trial that's going to last for four days. That's a lot for people. When you got disposable income, you got all this other stuff that's going on. That's a lot of sacrifice to make. But it all centers around doing what needs to be done to continue to be a servant to other people. Yeah. And, and it seems like you've done an amazing
1: job. I know some people like the success, that goes to their head. You know, they get the silk sheets and, you know, they no longer have that same level of fire burning within them that they did when they first started. Like, what are some of the ways that you've been able to
0: stay grounded? Being around normal people, it's funny. I don't really hang around a lot of lawyers. My friends are just, just normal people. Like, I, you know, one of my closest friends is a fireman and I hang out with some police officers. I just got normal folks that I hang around with. And I don't let the fact that I'm a lawyer define really who I am. I'm more so focused on, what can I do to help other people? That's how I live my life. I know that I'm, I'm doing something that's special, but to me, again, it's always about what can I do to be special to somebody else, to help somebody else. Mm-hmm.
1: And and in, in looking back, I mean, if you had to give younger Daryl just something you know today that if you had to go back, you know, 20 years, like, what, what advice would
0: you impart on him? Keep fighting young ruler. Keep fighting king. You're going to be all right. You just got to keep focusing on what's in your gut. You know what I mean? Like that's what got me to where I am probably tell them to, you know, bet on certain sport games. But outside of that, just always be yourself. If I would have been comfortable being myself in this profession a long time ago before I found my pathway, I would have gone further quicker. But at the same time, I'm always accepting of my path. You know, again, is when you start talking about the money and all of this stuff, who cares? The money is what it is but who are you like when you look in the mirror are you happy are you are you challenging that person in front of you yeah so it's like no finish line no absolutely not you know what i do after I, after i get a good result on the case go beat the shit out of myself i question everything i nitpick myself i torture myself to figure out if i could have done something different if i could have done something better there's never a day to where i'm going to be like okay i've done enough you know what i mean it's always about Keep challenging yourself. Keep pushing yourself. Keep finding what you could do to do this better, to make a change. To your point, I know you kind of
1: hinted at it earlier. It's almost like a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, it's like the way that you are is really, really great for doing the work that you do. But at the same time, it's probably somewhat of a curse. There's probably somebody listening
0: saying, man, why can't he just enjoy himself? Why can't he just relax? I am enjoying myself because I'm, I'm living in my purpose. You know what I mean? Like over the last two years, I lost my grandmother. No, I lost my mom first. I lost my aunt. I told you before, we all grew up in the same house. So I was raised with my mom and my aunt under the same roof. Lost my, since, since Hurricane Ida. Lost my mom, lost my grandmother. I lost my aunt and I lost my brother, who's younger than me. And all of that loss taught me that you have to value everything in your life. And the one thing that you have to value more so than anything is who you are as a person. Because all of the people that poured into you, they did that for a reason. So to honor my family, to honor the people that have cared about me, to the people who, who gave of themselves to me, I just keep fighting and keep working. That's what I was raised to do. Just going back to my childhood, I, I can recall when I was a kid, me and my brothers used to get in all kinds of trouble. My mom was just she used, to come, I, she used to cry like, I don't know what to do with these boys. They're just so bad. And we had this juvenile court counselor who had our families file. And this guy, a guy named Steven Allen, tall white guy, he told my mom, he said, listen, they got some kids that live around the corner for y'all, a family of brothers. There's no hope for them. But your, your sons, they're going to be all right. He started to take a special interest in us. He didn't throw us away and put us in the system. This, this, this white dude back in the 80s, early, early 90s, he didn't just throw us away and put us in the system. He made sure that he worked with my mom to get us to where we needed to be. She was a single mom raising all of us. And Steve Allen used to come to my basketball games. I didn't even know he was doing this. He used to come to my basketball games and watch. And I started not getting in trouble and just playing sports and moving it to my purpose. And I can remember when I first started practicing law, I was working in a law firm and one of the guys I was working for sent me to court in juvenile court. So I mean I went in and did my thing, advocated. I'm walking out and Steve Allen's in the back of the courtroom and he's crying. He said, he pulled me to the side, and I was like, hey, Steve, what's going on? He said, why are you crying? He said, I knew I made the right decision when I told your mom that you guys were going to be all right. So coming full circle, I understand what got me to where I am. It wasn't me. I had some God-given abilities and talents and things of that nature, but it was the people around me that made those sacrifices. I can't rest on my laurels and be like, oh, look at me. I don't give a shit about myself. I care about other people, and you know, I get the benefits of doing well and all that stuff. That's fine and good, but all that can go away. Now, what did I do? Who am I really? Strip it away. Who am I? And that's, you know, that's how I practice law. That's, it, that's easy for me.
1: there as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game
0: changer mean to you? I think being a game changer really means understanding the game, understanding it is a game, understanding that there's rules and all of this stuff. And once you grasp that concept, question everything. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for this. Understand all that. Understand why there's a referee. Understand why there's a you know why there's an opponent. Understand everybody's role in it, and then reach out on the edges and touch the edges and find space to to make changes. You know, there's always room to be innovative. There was somebody before Michael Jordan. There was Kobe. There was LeBron. There's always room for the space to be changed, and it's about you doing what you can to understand the space, respect it, honor it, but but also upset it.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to Daryl Gray for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book, Absolutely Free, at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Daryl Gray, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit LegalPodcast.com.